There's a pretty nice view from Mountain View. I said Kathleen MacArthur to her friend Judith Wright on a bright summer's day. And I don't know about you, but my greatest fears are that someone will take all this beauty away. So let's fight, oh let's fight for it, I say. Flora and Fauna, a lunch hour theatre script by Kathleen MacArthur. Our first story is the sex appeal of slipper orchids. They're wonderful creatures, and I sometimes think with a glow of pleasure when I remember making some little point in their method of fertilisation. These are the words of Kathleen in her book, The Bush in Bloom. Referring to the large native slipper orchids, Cryptostylus species, the tongue orchid and the striped hood. In temperate areas of Australia, the slipper orchid mimics the perfume of the female ichneumon fly or wasp and lures the male with pheromones. Kathleen writes we have a problem in the fact that much of our flora is unfamiliar for the reason it lacks association with our consciousness. If the discussion provoked by this unique story creates interest, familiarity and affection for our flora, it is then when the mind opens, the flowers bloom. Slipper orchid is a common name given to the species of the genus Cryptostylus and it is not uncommon in swampy places on the Sunshine Coast. Their appearance is unusual, but it is for other reasons that it has achieved international fame among naturalists. Here is the story taken from Rika Erickson's book Orchids of the West. These flowers practice an amazing deception on an ichneumon fly which attempts to mate with a flower. It is known that male insects usually emerge before their females and that from the latter sex there emanates a mysterious attraction that will draw insistent males from long distances. How a flower can have evolved this same appeal is a riddle. This sex appeal for a male ichneumon fly is used by the flower as an infallible means of attracting the one insect agent it needs to accomplish its own floral fertilisation. It is a strange tale, this mating of an insect with a flower, having witnessed this process myself. The actions are an instinctive response to an irresistible stimulus. The insect darts swiftly to the spot alights beneath the inverted flower and without hesitation backs into it. Its legs clasp the rolled margins of the labellum. The body is pressed closely to the groove along the centre of the flower and the tip of the abdomen is pressed into the stigma. The insect claspers are engaged with the labellum and there is resistance if attempts are made to pull it away. Investigation under the microscope reveals that seminal fluid has been discharged. Meanwhile, the pollinia of the flower has been attached to the end of the abdomen. The sticky fluid of the viscid disc has needed the slight delay for hardening. Then the ichneumon fly goes swiftly to another orchid and deposits the pollinia in the same manner as it was received. A fraudulent trick has been played, but the flower wins with its visitor exactly what it wants. 
a packet of pollinia carried by the insect from one bloom to another. While the slipper orchid is famous in its own way, the wildflower of our song is immortalised in the poetry of Judith Wright. It is the Wonga vine and has been given its own haunting melody. Look down, be still The sunburst days on fire Oh, twilight bear Flower of the Wonga vine I gather you the cream moves in its hidden pool the sun has eyes of fire be my white waterfall lie on my eyes like hands let no sun shine oh twice Light bell, flower of the Wonga vine. Australia's bowerbirds are justifiably acclaimed for their cleverness in building and painting and decorating special playgrounds. Of one of them by far the best known, the satin bowerbird, it has been written, It has been more studied than all the other bowerbirds put together and so many interesting traits have been noted that it has been called the cleverest bird on earth. Is it possible that two Australian bowerbirds have become extinct since colonisation by Europeans? Judith Wright tells of the scarlet satin bird in her poem Extinct Birds. Charles Harper, in his journals long ago, written in hope and love and never printed, recorded the birds of his time's forest, described in copperplate on unread pages. The scarlet satin bird swung like a lamp in berries. He watched in love, and then in hope, described it. There was a bird, blue, small, spangled like dew, all now vanished with a fallen forest, and he, unloved, past hope, was buried. Who helped with proud stained hands to fell the forest? and set those birds in love on unread pages, yet thought himself immortal, being a poet. And is he not immortal, where I found him, in love and hope along his careful pages? The poet vanished, in the vanished forest, among his brightly tinted extinct birds. Our second story is Herb the Seahorse, pays 50 to 1. Herb the Seahorse pays 50 to 1. Floating in the green, misty depths of his home in Taronga Aquarium, Herbert the Seahorse is scratching his head with his tail. Herbert is puzzled. He looks more like a question mark than ever. And no wonder, for Herbert has just become the father of 50. Now, Herbert is fond of youngsters, 
And when the ever-loving wife announced the approach of motherhood, Herbert was the happiest seahorse in the world. Proudly he tucked the eggs containing his future family into the satchel on his chest. And then, with the air of an indecently prosperous bookie, he floated around searching for choice tidbits for the wife. A few weeks later, Herbert felt the time was ripe. Taking a pull at the zip fastener on his satchel, he waited eagerly for the young hopefuls to emerge. Since seahorses are as much given to large families as our Victorian ancestors, quintuplets wouldn't have surprised Herbert greatly. But quintuplets ten times over? Well, it was too much for a respectable seahorse, and so... Moodily wrapping his tail around a twig, Herbert is given over to bewilderment as well as parental pride. He is wondering just how he's going to find board and lodging for fifty. How he's going to find names for them all and how he's going to find eligible suitors for his thirty daughters when they grow up. And since the whole family resemble each other closely, like minute bits of cotton thread, Herbert is also wondering how on earth he's going to pick out and spank the naughty ones. Yet, if poor Herbert could see into the future, a sense of tragedy would replace the bewilderment in his little head. He does not know that the whole family are suddenly going to leave him forever, without a single word of farewell. You see, Herbert's home has running water laid on, and running water doesn't provide the crustacea on which little seahorses like to dine. The whole fifty will get very hungry, and driven by famine, they will let that same running water whirl them away into the unknown. Pipes will carry them from the aquarium down the hillside and deposit them gently into the sea. And as they find food and a new life, Herbert, again scratching his head in the bewildered sorrow of his bereavement, will fade forever from their infant memory. Poor Herbert. This podcast series was produced by the Sunshine Coast Council Heritage Library with the support of a strategic priority grant from the State Library of Queensland. This series was produced in 2022 and may not be reproduced for any commercial or non-commercial interest.